0: You are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit enduringword.com. Hello, everybody. I think we're just going on air right now. Welcome to our Thursday afternoon program. If we've never been introduced, my name is David Guzik. I'm a pastor. I'm a Bible teacher. There's some people who know me from my online Bible commentary uh, at EnduringWord.com and at Blue Letter Bible, that's BLB.org. Uh, some people find it helpful, and uh, I get together with whoever wants to show up on a Thursday afternoon and take live questions and give them whatever answers I can give. I, I like to say from the very outset that I-, I do not have the answer to every question you have about the Bible, about theology, about history, about the Christian life. I don't have every, an- every answer, but if I do know something, I'm happy to share it. And if I don't know something, I don't mind telling you, uh, I don't know. So, that's kind of the premise that we go uh, by here. I want to give a special welcome today to our TWR 360 audience. Hello, TWR 360. Welcome to our Thursday broadcast. We appreciate our partnership with TWR 360. This is a marvelous ministry that for decades has been reaching difficult to reach places in the world. Through shortwave radio and now their online presence twr 360 transworld radio 360 boy they're doing a work with that online as well so welcome and i'm glad that you could join us our normal uh pattern for a thursday afternoon is i begin with a lead question that's a question that i've chosen And uh, sometimes it comes to us through uh, a leftover question from a previous Q&A. Maybe it comes in on social media. Maybe it comes in a YouTube comment. Uh, But this particular question has to do with the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. And TR31K asks this question. Quote, here's the question from TR31K. When Christ refers to the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God in Matthew 5 and Luke seventeen twenty one, is he referring to a future kingdom on earth or a figurative meaning? How do I know when to interpret these literally? Well, listen, uh TR 31K, look, if I forget it and just call you TR, I hope you know what I'm getting at here. Uh, that's a great question because Uh, it's a little bit of, uh, I won't say it's a controversy, but there's people really trying to figure this one out through the history of Christianity. Now, what you mentioned here was references to the kingdom of God, for example, in Matthew chapter 5 and Luke chapter 17. Uh, So, let me just go over a few of those passages right here. For example, in Matthew chapter uh, uh, 3, I have it wrong on my notes right here. You're going to see right here, I put up on the screen, Matthew chapter 3, verse 5. That's actually Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then Matthew chapter 5, verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, I, I guess in part what TR is asking here is, is that referring to a kingdom to come Or is that referring to something that people can have an experience in their lives right now? And and really, uh, TR, uh, I'll develop this question. I want to deal a lot more. I want to talk a little bit about the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. But I just want to kind of say there's a very real sense in which both, uh, there's a kind of a standard theological phrase. It's almost become a cliche, but listen, sometimes cliches explain things pretty well. And they talk about the kingdom being the the kingdom of God being already and not yet. In other words, there is a very real sense in which the kingdom of God is already; it's right here, right now. There's another sense in which the kingdom of God is yet to come. Uh, let, let's take a look here uh, at the next verse that we're talking about here. Matthew chapter five, verse 19. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, I think if you kind of compare these uh, in in the opening beatitudes there, the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, there's an aspect of God's reign, God's rule in a person's life who is poor in spirit that they enjoy in the present moment, in the present time, right here, right now. However, what Jesus spoke about there in Matthew chapter five, verse 19 was clearly something having to do with the future. Did you notice that? Um, Whoever doesn't teach them he shall be called, shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, I find it interesting that in the New Testament, that phrase, the kingdom of heaven, only occurs in Matthew. TR, I I understand you weren't really asking about this, but this interests me, so I just want to deal with this. Um, It it seems that sometimes Matthew uses kingdom of heaven as a replacement for the phrase kingdom of God. Uh, Here's a comparison you can make here. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, again, I switched around my notes, sorry about that. Uh, Matthew five three, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then a similar statement Jesus made is recorded in Luke chapter six verse twenty, blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. By the way, I would be one of those who would say that these were two different sermons that Jesus preached. One of them being the Sermon on the Mount, the other one being in Luke the Sermon on the Plain. Uh, but I think that Jesus often preached themes from the Sermon on the Mount. But the whole point of it is what I want you to get here is that here in Matthew and in Luke, there's just pretty much a replacement of the idea of the kingdom of heaven for the idea of the kingdom of God. So to substitute heaven instead of saying God was common among some Jewish people in that day who still today look for words to replace God so as to not say the word directly. Matthew's use of kingdom of heaven seems to be this indirect way of referring to God. Uh, And it's appropriate for gospel that was written to a mainly Jewish audience. Matter of fact, Matthew, if my memory serves me correctly, is the only one of the four gospel writers to use that specific phrase, kingdom of heaven. However, I gotta say, it is interesting to see that Matthew even though he's the only one to use the phrase kingdom of heaven in the New Testament, uh, he uses it 33 times, he also used the phrase kingdom of God somewhere around five times. For example, in the same Sermon on the Mount that uses the phrase kingdom of heaven five times, Jesus also referred to the kingdom of God. Look at Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Look, I'll be honest, I don't know exactly what to make of all that, other than to say that while Matthew mainly referenced to the kingdom of Jesus as the kingdom of heaven, there were occasions where he referred to it as the kingdom of God as the other gospel writers did. But but this gets back to TR's real question. That was sort of a side issue. What is the kingdom of God? Well, let me put it to you this way. Jesus Christ is a king. He is the king of kings. And the kingdom of God is where the reign of Jesus is recognized and submitted to and where the benefits of his reign are received. In this sense, we could say that the kingdom of God is both spiritual and material. There is a spiritual aspect to the kingdom of Jesus Christ, and there is a material aspect. And I need to be very plain about this and very straightforward. We often think of spiritual things as being less real than material things. You know, I'm looking for material things around me. Here's a a, a phone that I have, uh, here's a you know the the phone that I normally use, some model of an iPhone. And, and it's easy for us to think, well, is this something material? That's real, something spiritual isn't? But friends, I want you to understand the spiritual realm, is just as real as the material realm. You can even make the argument that the spiritual realm is more real than the material realm because the spiritual realm will exist when the material realm passes away or at least is radically transformed. So the kingdom of God is both spiritual and material and one isn't any less or more real than the other. And in a sense... Churches, communities of Christians are, or at least should be, sort of outposts or embassies of the kingdom of God. There's a very real sense in which the kingdom of God is already present. A a, a good functioning church is like a kingdom community. The values of God's kingdom are valued among them. The priorities of God's kingdom, the truth of God's kingdom, the holiness of God's kingdom are, are all reflected in that community. Now, of course, not perfectly. That, that's going to await for the future. But, but at least in some discernible measure, the, the truth, the beauty, the holiness, the ethics, the values, the priorities of the kingdom of God should be reflected in among God's people individually, if you're a citizen of that kingdom, and uh, corporately, together. You know, I, I, I am an American. I don't think that comes as a surprise to anybody. You just hear me talk, and everybody can tell that I'm an American. Uh, so, I have, though, traveled a lot to other countries, and for seven years, we lived in Europe, in the nation of Germany. We we know a little bit what it's like to either as a visitor or as a resident live in a different place. And you're always interested to meet somebody else from the country you're from. If you're a German and you live in America, you might be interested to meet another German. If you're an American living in Germany, you might be interested to meet another American. You feel like, well, you have some certain things in common. You have some certain values in common, certain history in common. That is somewhat what it's like for the people of the kingdom of God in the midst of a corrupt world. Now, the kingdom of God is already present, but it is also coming. It is present now in and among God's people, but it also is to come as a material reality over all the earth. Let me read you just a bunch of verses, uh, mainly from Isaiah and uh, Jeremiah, but these are just great verses that talk about the coming dominion of the Lord over all the earth. Here we go. Isaiah uh, eleven nine. 9, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Um Isaiah two four. he will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands shall wait for his law. I mean, that ex- talks about the extent of God's kingdom, of God's authority extending, uh, not his authority, because there's a sense real, his authority already exists, but, but his, uh, his manifest will and order and administration uh, in an apparent sense, extending all over the world. How about this one from Isaiah 52, verse 10? The Lord has made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Well, friends, is that true or not? Will God display his power and his glory in the eyes of all the nations, and will all the nations in some way or another see the salvation of God? Or you can take a look at Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 10. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At his wrath, the earth will tremble and the nations will not be able to endure his indignation. I want you to understand in the phrasing of that, you're talking about the earth and the nations as an entirety. Now, I, I just would ask any fair reader, has Jeremiah ten ten? happened in any literal sense? I think the answer is no. Uh, Certainly, God has demonstrated his power and his work in history. There's no doubt about that, but not in the comprehensive way that it's described. And let me read to you one more. Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 5 says this. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. That's Speaking of Jesus the Messiah, a king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. Now, friends, again, uh, certainly there's a sense in a small scale in which that has happened and is happening, but but I think that most every Christian would say that it's going to happen in a literal, extensive, expansive scale uh, eventually. Now. Christians have come to different approaches to the ultimate establishment of the kingdom of God. And if I want to give some very broad, imprecise definitions of this, I would kind of put it like this. Some people believe that the kingdom of God, in its ultimate sense, is already among us. Okay, to be too broad and imprecise, they call that idea amillennialism. The kingdom of God in its ultimate sense is already among us. Some believe that the kingdom of God in its ultimate sense will be established through God's people before the glorious second coming of Jesus Christ. That thinking is called post-millennialism. And then some people, and I'm in this third category, believe that the kingdom of God in its ultimate sense uh will be established by Jesus himself after his glorious second coming. But notice this, uh, that's called premillennialism. And and so we have the three different approaches. This is in classic Christian theology, amillennial, postmillennial, premillennial. For most of Christian history, people have been either amillennial or postmillennial. Uh, But I have to say, and I'm not going to get into the whole discussion right now, I I do think that those approaches are incorrect. And I definitely believe in the rule and reign of King Jesus. And I excitedly await it. And it's going to be ushered in by Jesus himself after his glorious second coming. Friends, I got to say, I, I don't know if I trust man even redeemed man on this side of the consummation of all things to rule the world properly on Jesus' behalf. I guess that's a discussion that we're just going to have to have. Uh, If it can work, I'd like to see it in small scale. There's a lot of talk today about a Christian nationalism, at least in some corners. Hey, we should have a nation for Christ. Can I just say, praise the lord wouldn't that be awesome if there was truly a christian nation wouldn't that be awesome i think it would be amazing and awesome and especially if that nation could stay christian because you can look back in a nation's history no matter what nation it is and perhaps see a time in its past when it was more christian you take the nations of europe You can look back in the past and say, there was a time in their past when they were definitely much more Christian than they are today. Uh, Same thing's true for the United States of America and almost every nation in the modern world. Okay, so, well, most every Western nation, I should be clear about that, in many places on the globe today, in Africa, in Asia, in Latin America, uh, those nations are as Christian now as they've ever been or more so. But getting back to this uh, if a it would be a glorious thing if a nation could be christian and remain christian but if this is possible in the sense that people who take the title christian nationalist take it if this is possible i would just say brothers why don't you start with a start with a city before you want to give us a christian nation give us a christian city And give us 10, 20, 30 years. Give the world 30 or 40 years of a Christian city to show not only that can it be done, not just for one election cycle, but it's a city that can stay Christian. If that's the case, how absolutely glorious that would be. But why don't you show us? If it can happen on a big scale, it can happen on a small scale. Show us along those lines. Okay, but I do want to emphasize here that the emphasis is on the word ultimate. We don't deny that the kingdom of God is among us now in a real, not in a figurative sense, but it is a spiritual sense among God's people. The more influence God's people have in any particular city, state, or nation, then the more that city, state, or nation should look like the ultimate kingdom of God. And so it's real and among us now. But as many of those passages from the Old Testament show, one day it will be gloriously instituted by Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And he will reign over the entire world. And the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the seas. And all the nations will bow down to Jesus. And as Psalm 2 says, kiss the sun. Yes, friends, that's real. It's going to happen. But again, I I definitely do not believe that it's uh, for the church to accomplish on Jesus' behalf. Oh, the the church should be working to, to have a more Christian place where they live. They should do that through evangelism, through discipleship, through wise political action and organization, all those things. But the ultimate kingdom is ushered in by Christ himself. At least that's how I see it. Now, uh, TR-31K also asked about Luke chapter 17, where Jesus said, um, uh, the kingdom of God does not come with observation. And then later in verse 21, he said, the kingdom of God is within you. Um, TR-31K, I I would just want to point out that I do think that those aren't very good translations there. I do like what the ESV does. And from my research, I think this is a very good translation. Um, Jesus is just saying this, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here is there or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Uh, That reply of Jesus in Luke chapter 17, he was answering hostile religious leaders who were kind of folding their arms and saying, show us the kingdom, show us the kingdom. Jesus said, you got the kingdom right here because you have the king right here. The kingdom of God is in the midst of you. I am in the midst of you. Uh, But again, I don't think that takes away at all from just the general tone. So let me just get back to your basic question here, TRK. Um, Many of these passages have application to both an immediate sense in how that would work out in the life of a believer and a congregation and how would it work out Um, globally, in the ultimate realization of the kingdom, then those things, when it's referring to these things happening all over the earth, you see that this is the work of Jesus Christ in his glorious second coming. And as I said before, Christians as kingdom citizens should be working for the betterment of culture and society around them every step of the way. Praise the Lord for that. That's what we should be doing as believers. Okay, hope I answered that for you enough uh TRK 30 TR 31k um, we kind of try to give priority to questions in the side chat that uh, have to do with the lead question. Um, that's not the only criteria that we have, but that's one of the criteria that we have for taking a look here at the questions that we take a look at for the side chat. So um let me just click a few things here and start going to the questions in the side chat. Here we go here. Um, Leo asked this question. We read about prayer and fasting in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. What are the spiritual significance of fasting, and how do they, prayer and fasting, work together? Well, uh, okay, great question, Leo. Um, Here... (sighs) If I could express the spiritual significance. Now, again, I I don't think that this is the only aspect of spiritual significance. Every time we talk about fasting, I like to recommend the book by my father-in-law, Dedication Through Fasting and Prayer by Nils-Erik Bergström. Um, This is a book you can get on Amazon. Just go to Amazon, look for the book Dedication Through Fasting and Prayer you can get it in English. I think it's also available in Swedish if you'd like it there. Nils Gunno, if you're watching right now, God bless you. Greetings from California. But uh, take a look at this book uh, to get a great explanation. But uh, let me sum up one of the central ideas of fasting can be expressed in something Jesus said in response to Satan when Jesus was being tempted in the wilderness. Jesus said that very simple statement, Man does not live by bread alone. And fasting, in one sense, I'm not saying this encompasses every good thing or every meaningful thing about fasting, because there's another important aspect of it that I'll speak about. But one of the most important things about fasting is it just recognizes that our lives depend on more than the food that we eat. Look, we just understand when you're hungry, you want to eat. We we want food, but there are higher things for us to pursue. There are greater things for us to pursue than the appetites we have in our body, whether it be the appetite we have, uh, you know, any kind of bodily appetite could fit into that category. Now, there's another great benefit from fasting, and that is simply the practice of self-denial. Look, it's possible for people to get off in a weird direction with self-denial. You know, you you read about monks of old, and maybe some people still do this, you know, kind of sleeping on uh, sharp objects, sleeping on cold floors, keeping themselves up watches through the night with ice baths and such like this. Uh, Sure, it's possible to abuse just about anything. But that does not mean that there's not an entirely appropriate and godly place for self-denial. For being able to say to this flesh, you're not in charge. God is in charge. And that's really what um, the practice of fasting does. So, uh, the relationship between prayer and fasting is, uh, prayer is a way of seeking God, of appealing to him. And fasting is a way that we prioritize God and align ourselves with his heart and his purpose. Prayer should have God as the priority. Fasting is a way to exercise that to say, God is, in fact, my priority. So, Leo, that's what I would recommend to you. And again, I just want to uh, recommend to people this book, Dedication Through Fasting and Prayer, by my father-in-law, Nils Bergström. Okay, uh, let me go on to the next question from Adonis, who asks, uh, what is your definition of the word cult? What criteria must be met in order for it to be a cult? Do you believe that the Seventh-day Adventist church is a cult? Why or why not in your view? Okay, Adonis, let me answer that question. And I Adonis, I, I love your question because you're really getting at something serious here. Christians say all the time, cult this, cult that. And unless we understand what we mean when we talk about something being a cult, then we really don't know what we're talking about. We can't come to agreement on things. So, let me say, first of all, that there is an academic definition of cult. And basically, an academic definition of a cult is that it's basically any religious practice. So, An academic may look at the customs of ancient Judaism and talk about the cult of, you know, Moses instituted or something like that. So there's an academic level, but most people don't use the term in that sense. But I just want you to be aware that that academic sense of the term cult is out there. Secondly, I want you to understand that when I use the definition of a cult, I don't mean a group that's just wrong about something. This is how I, I, I would, um, make my definition of cult something similar to my definition of heresy. I reserve the term heresy for this, that if you believe this, or if you believe what these people teach, you're going to go to hell. You won't go to heaven. You're in such denial of the biblical truth of who God is and what he did to rescue us that you are in very real peril of not going to heaven at all. Um, you're not in right relationship with God. I would put cult in the same category. Now, I do want to say one other thing, and then I'll get to your thing. So, cult, first of all, there's academic, and then there's a popular sense of it. When I use the term cult, I'm using it for things that are outside the realm of biblical Christianity. But there is also a way to speak about a cult in a sociological sense. I, look, I, I'm not big on the study of sociology, so I, I can't maybe think of a better word. Maybe I should say a cultural sense. Get it? Cultural, cult. Anyway, um, but there's a sociological or a cultural sense of it. In other words, there are Christian groups that have pretty good doctrine, maybe not great, but pretty good doctrine, but their social environment is cultish. The way that they treat one another, the way that the leadership works, the way that the members or followers respond to the leadership is very much with they um social aspects of a cult. So, there's social cults, and then there's theological cults. I do not believe that the Seventh-day Adventist Church qualifies as a cult, because uh, even though I do believe that there's some uh, significant error in some of their doctrines, at the same time, I would not put it in the category say that uh, if you believe what most Seventh Day Adventist pastors and churches teach, you you will it'll be impossible for you to come in right relationship with God. You won't go to heaven. So I would not put Seventh Day Adventists into that category. Although, look, just like in any group, there's no doubt a radical fringe in the Seventh Day Adventist group that I would say, well, they are probably a cult. But by and large, my interaction with Seventh-day Adventists would not lead me to the conclusion that, um, broadly speaking, they're a cult. Hope that's helpful for you there, Adonis. Thank you for the question. Here's a question that comes from Kama'au. Excuse me. Gonna get a drink of water here. Kama'au asks this question. I would like your view on 1 Timothy 3. What are the various offices outlined and how do they translate to today's church? Is there an office in church hierarchy that is appropriate for a woman to hold? Okay, Flora, let me just give it to you directly. Um, I am going to uh, honor you by speaking directly. Look, I know it's possible for me to just get super diplomatic and, and and try to uh, smooth over any differences that uh, Christians may have on these areas. But Flora, you're asking me this question. I'm so pleased that you're asking me, um, but I'm just going to give you my answer. And again, I want to do you the honor of speaking to you directly. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, it deals with overseers. Now, that word could be translated bishops, but the, the word uh, means overseers, And it speaks of deacons. The Bible speaks of leadership in the church in three offices overseers, elders, and pastors. There is overlap between these different offices. In some sense, they seem to be combined in one, describing different functions. um, But in other senses, it seems to be maybe a little bit of variation. For example, Paul will refer to elders who teach, implying that not all elders teach or or handle the word of God, um, but yet they are leaders in the congregation. But they are ones that are recognized in their leadership as elders. They have oversight of the congregation as bishops. And then the third word, pastor, is used less in the New Testament, but it's definitely used, and that means of a shepherdly care that they have over the congregation. Flora, I believe that those offices are refer, are reserved for qualified men in a congregation. It, it's, it's not just a man that any man can hold these offices. No, not at all. But qualified men among God's churches, among congregations, they can hold these offices. Uh, Bishop or overseer, elders, pastors. Now, I also want to tell you this, Flora, is I don't believe that the Bible commands any particular form or structure of church government. And that's why I think through the history of the church, we've seen different forms and structures of church government. For example, uh, one classical, there are three classical forms of church government. Uh, There's the Episcopal, which puts the uh, authority mostly in a singular leader of the church. Some people could refer to it today as the pastoral leadership model. Uh, Then there's the Presbyterian or the elder-led model, where uh, supposedly the church is led by a team of people who have equal authority and, um, you know, leadership, clout, whatever you want to say. And then the third would be congregational. Uh, That's where the church is led by vote of the congregation. Now, I, I believe you can find at least some biblical precedent for every one of these, And I think God did that deliberately because the important thing in church leadership is not fundamentally structure. I'm not saying structure doesn't matter, but fundamentally, the most important thing in church leadership is character. Any structure of church government, Episcopal, Presbyterian, uh, or or Congregational, any one of those uh, church governments pastor-led, elder-led, congregation-led, any one of them can work if the people in those systems are people of godly character. More important than the structure is the godliness. And that's what the emphasis is on in the New Testament. Now, you asked this question, Flora, is there an office in the church hierarchy that's appropriate for a woman to hold? Okay, I'm going to try to get very literal in the way you answered that question. Is there an office in the church hierarchy that's appropriate for women to hold, Flora? I'm going to give you the straight answer. No, I don't think so. I don't think women should hold the offices of uh, overseer, elder, pastor. Those are offices that God is reserved for qualified men. And friends, if this outrages you, I recommend to you two videos that are in our YouTube library. One is where I teach through this passage in First Timothy chapter 2, starting at verse 12, uh, where I teach through this passage very carefully, and uh, I just discuss this important—it's not the only passage in the New Testament that speaks of this, but it's an important passage in the New Testament that speaks of this order that God has established for the church. And then I would also recommend to you another video on our YouTube channel where um, what I would say to a women pastor— If you probably just search our YouTube channel for woman pastor, you'll probably find it and and see what that is all about. But um, I would recommend that to you as well. The the whole thing, what would I say to a woman pastor? So, um, look those up if you want to go any deeper. Now, overseer, elder, pastor, those are offices of authority. And that implies some kind of hierarchy. There is an office that I do believe is open to women, and that's the office of deacon. There are examples in the New Testament, I believe. That, look, some of this stuff, there's controversy about it. People like to argue about it, but I'm just giving you my take on this. I believe that the New Testament establishes that there were woman or female deacons in the New Testament church, and we certainly know that they existed in the early church. But deacon is not fundamentally an office of authority. Is there some authority with it? Well, yes, some, but it's not in the hierarchy, so to speak. So it's an office, but it's an office focused on service, not on leadership, not on oversight, uh, not on uh, leading or ruling a congregation as an elder would do. So, Flora, you asked, Is there an office in the church hierarchy that's appropriate for women to hold? I would say no. Is there an office in church ministry that's appropriate for women to hold? Absolutely. And I would say the office of deacon. That's how I would describe it most directly, Flora. So, Flora, look, I don't know you. I don't know if my answer pleases you or displeases you. That's not my responsibility. I just want you to know I'm trying to do you the respect of speaking to you directly on this. And if you want more information on those things, I really recommend to you those videos in my YouTube channel. Thank you for that, Flora. God bless you. Okay, next question comes from Daughter of the King, who says, My pastor said we don't need to confess our sins because they are all forgiven. Is this true? I think this is dangerous to say. All right, Daughter of the King, you're putting me in a little bit of an awkward spot because I don't want to uh, go around undermining the authority of pastors. And maybe if your pastor was right here in the room with me and we could discuss this, maybe it would come off a little bit different. But if you were to ask me, Daughter of the King, Hey, uh, I don't think we need to confess our sins because they're all forgiven. David, what do you think about that? Daughter of the king, this is the answer I would give you. I would say, no, that's wrong. Because one of the passages that I think is really important in this regard is uh, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. Let me see if I can pull this up here. Um, excuse me just for a moment while... I try to get this set up. I don't know how successful I'll be in this. Um, let me go to this passage. First John chapter one. Verse nine. Okay. Uh, yeah. Wouldn't you know, I have that passage highlighted there. Okay. Let me look for this here. Okay. Here's the passage. Uh, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Well, listen, daughter of the king, I'm sure you're in the same place that I am. I want his word to be in me. And and here, uh, John is making it very plain. And by the way, it's very important to see, you'll see this throughout the context of 1 John. 1 John was written to believers. 1 John was not written to unbelievers. 1 John was not written as an evangelistic tract. It's written to believers about how they can live in true fellowship with God. So... um, from 1 John chapter 1, we can see very plainly that believers should be confessing their sin. And then again, we have the instruction in James, what is it, chapter 5? Uh, confess your sins one to another and, and be healed. So, uh, again, I, I'm going to disagree. Now, he, here's the point, is that we don't have to confess a sin specifically for it to be covered by the blood of Jesus, for it to be accounted as paid for, because there's no way that you or I or anybody else can confess every single sin we've ever committed. I don't think we could confess every single sin we commit in a single day, much less our whole life. So the issue is not, oh, can I confess every single sin I've ever committed? No, that's not the idea. But what John and James are getting at is to confess sins as we become aware that they are interfering, those sins are interfering with our fellowship with God. That gives us a great reason to confess our sin and come to the place of restored fellowship. It is possible for a person to be born again, to be on their way to heaven, and yet for a season, their fellowship with God is not what it should be. And that's what uh, 1 John was really written to address. So maybe your pastor, daughter of the king, is thinking more in terms strictly of salvation, but salvation is not the only issue here. Christians aren't concerned only with how do I get to heaven? They're concerned with how do I honor God as a disciple of Jesus Christ? And part of that will have to do with um, confessing our sin and keeping ourselves in right relationship with God. Thank you for that question there, daughter of the king. Next question comes from uh, Broken People. Uh, James says that God can't be tempted and Matthew says that Jesus was led by the spirit to be tempted. Help. Okay, well, it's absolutely true. Matthew chapter 4 verse 1 tells us that Jesus was led by the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, and James chapter 1 verse 13 says that that God cannot be tempted by evil. Here's simple answer broken people and uh, I, I, it's really not too hard to comprehend. Well, maybe it is difficult to comprehend. It's it's not too hard to state. Look, Jesus was God, but he was also human. It was the humanity of Jesus that was tempted, not his divinity. And look, this is complicated. It's possible for a person to drive such a division between the humanity and the deity of Jesus that they're trying to claim that he was two people, but he wasn't two people. He was one person, but there was nothing in the deity of Jesus that could be tempted at all, but Jesus was not only divine, he was also human. And so kind of the quick, maybe a little bit imprecise, there's so much more to this question or to this explanation that could be given, but to give it in a very basic sense, broken people, I would say this, that Jesus was tempted in his humanity, not in his deity. So that's the way I would answer that. Okay, next question comes from Susan. It says... Uh, John 3.16 says, should have everlasting life instead of will. Uh, I'm thinking because should seems not sure. What are your thoughts? Um, Susan, I don't know what specific translation that you're referring to. Uh, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Um, Susan, I, I just think that you are focusing too much on that word should in the English language. Um, please remember that when we're translating from one language to another, words have certain associations, certain nuances, certain aspects to them that, you know, we just kind of get. Um, I, I don't think that in the original from nothing I've ever read on John chapter three, any of the commentaries, any of the Greek commentators that I've taken a look at, I've never seen anything that would seem to indicate that there's uncertainty about that. And so, any uncertainty that you or I or somebody else might read into the word "should" is really something that is just a uh, an artifact of the English translation. It's not an aspect of the original text. And that's why uh, translations into other languages always fall short in some regard. Uh, They do a good job, uh, but of course, it's always preferred, if a person can, to read something in the original. So Susan, I hope that answers your question. But just to say, come back to the idea that in the original uh, Greek, the Koine Greek that the New Testament was written in, there's no sense in the phrasing there that it's uncertain. And... The English word doesn't demand uncertainty, should, but it could imply it. Uh, That same kind of connotation or range of meaning isn't included in the original text of the New Testament. Hope that helps you there, Susan. Uh, Next question comes from George, who asks, Should we be able to call out the church for not living by Scripture? In other words, having the ability to help, not just to say, I'll pray for you. Could unwillingness to do this be the sin of commission or would that be the sin of omission? Okay, well, George, uh, first of all, the sin of omission and commission. um, If somebody has the opportunity to do good and they don't do it, that's a sin of omission. If somebody is obligated to do something and they don't do it. That is a sin of commission, maybe mingled a little bit with the sin of omission. So, just to kind of clear up the omission and commission thing. But George, um, you seem to be referring to a specific situation that to give a adequate judgment about would require a lot more information. But, you're answering, um, should we be able to call out the church for not living by Scripture? Listen, where a church fails scripturally, it's fair enough to point it out. Um, All the while, understanding and accepting that that may be the way it is in our lives, too. George, one of the things we have to remember is, Jesus told us very specifically in the Sermon on the Mount, that we should never judge anyone else by a standard that we would not want to be judged by because God will judge us by the same standard that we judge other people by. The biggest problem is when people are very hard on others and very easy on themselves. They're they're full of understanding and accommodation and appreciation when it comes to themselves and their own sins and failings but they tend to be very harsh and dogmatic and by the book, so to speak, when it comes to the sins of other people. You can obviously see that there's a problem there. But is it possible? Is it sometimes appropriate for a believer to call out the church for not living by scripture? Absolutely it is. Now, as far as having the ability to help, but to just say, I'll pray for you, that very well could be a sin, George. But the Bible is clear in the book of First Timothy, is it? Or is it Second Timothy? I th- gotta think it's First Timothy. I'll just say the pastoral epistles. That the support of the church to its member, financial support, needs to be given out judiciously. Uh, it's absolutely fair to examine the life and the morality and the conduct of those to whom the church would support, at least on any kind of regular basis. So, George, I have no idea if the situation you're referring to falls into those categories. In principle, George, what you're talking about is true, but how those principles get applied, that is where it can get kind of sticky. So, I hope that helps you there, George. God bless you. All right. My moderator, going to need to take a drink of water here. My moderator, and you know who you are, moderator, has given me a super lightning round. I don't know exactly what that means, but apparently it's super. So let's get started on a super lightning round. Ready? from Tunal Banan Hello from Sweden. At what exact moment does our so I thought Tunelbanan Banan last week was somewhere else. M- maybe he was on holiday and has come back. Welcome back Tunelbanan Banan uh hello from Sweden. At what exact moment does our soul go directly to eternity when we take our last breath, when the heart stops beating, or when the brain stops working? Um Tunal Ban I don't know if I can answer that specifically. Uh, because I don't know if I can say when why would I say that? Because of the way the death of Jesus is described on the cross. If you remember, uh, Jesus said that he had um uh that jesus the the scripture said that jesus breathed he gave up his spirit and then breathed his last and so that kind of gives a little bit of an indication that maybe it's tied to uh this idea of the um breathing the last that would be the best information i could give but you know i i, I beyond that i couldn't really say uh, grandma 2j asks Uh, Hello, Pastor David. Is there a reference in the Bible to each person having a guardian angel? Thank you. Uh, Grandma 2J, kind of. Jesus made reference to uh, little ones and their angels. And some people have taken that as a reference to um, guardian angels. So, what you would have to do is do a, a word search for that. Um, through a Bible concordance program. There's great stuff available on Blue Letter Bible. Uh, but Jesus spoke about little ones having their angels. And that doesn't exactly give the idea of a guardian angel, but it suggests it. I guess I would say this, Grandma. The idea of a guardian angel is suggested, but not clearly stated in the scriptures. Next question comes again from Flora. It says... When a pregnancy ends very early, on day 12 or day 12 weeks, is it correct to say that the child is in heaven? I don't know why, but for some reason, I have difficulty answering that question. Flora, when David in the Bible, when his infant son died, a newborn son died, David was confident that he would see that child in heaven. I do think it's very important to say that though I do believe that children, children from miscarriages, uh, even miscarriages that people may not be aware of, uh, children who die as infants or newborns, and children up to an age of accountability, which, look, the Bible does not give an age for accountability, but gives a principle of accountability. Uh, I believe that... Those go to heaven, but not, listen carefully to this, not because they are innocent. That's the important thing to recognize. No, we are born guilty in Adam's sin. So the goodness of God's grace that gave David the ability to confidently say that he would see his uh, newborn who died in heaven It's not on the basis of the newborn being innocent, it's on the basis of the greatness of God's mercy. And the fact, of course, that that person never made a conscious rejection of God and their saving and God's saving work for them. So, I I would want to be very careful. We we don't want to give people the idea that um, miscarriages or... Other circumstances that they go to heaven because they are innocent, but rather if they are in heaven, it is because of the greatness and the mercy of God. Now, say one more thing. We have a greater assurance of this for believers than we do for non believers. I could not confidently tell someone who has not believed in Christ, someone who's not part of God's family, I could not confidently tell them they'll see they'll, their baby in heaven. I could confidently say that based on what Paul writes by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, isn't it? Uh, that the children are sanctified by a believing parent. I could say it confidently to a believer. I could only say it hopefully to an unbeliever. Hope that helps you, there, Floor. Next question comes from Ryan. I've always wondered what became a Barabbas. I know the Bible doesn't discuss him after he was released. Could he perhaps have gotten saved before he died? Ryan, it's possible. Listen, if there was anybody who got the idea that Jesus Christ died for me, it was Barabbas. Barabbas knew that Jesus died in his place. You know, the Romans prepared three crosses on that day, and the cross in the middle was intended for Barabbas. But Jesus sort of literally was nailed to Barabbas' cross. And if there's anybody had a reason to understand that Jesus died for him, it was Barabbas. Maybe we'll see him in heaven. Uh, Daughter of the King asks, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 34 says that women are not to speak in the church. Isn't this speaking to the church in Corinth? And isn't it meant to be read literal for us now? Okay, uh, Daughter of the King, I'll just give a very brief explanation of this. I recommend to you my commentary. Go to EnduringWord.com. Look up the commentary on 1 Corinthians chapter 14. But I think that this is best seen as Paul speaking that women, because they're not part of the leadership of the church— should be silent when it comes to judging prophecy in their midst. That's the whole context of 1 Corinthians chapter 14. I do not believe that 1 Corinthians 14 was a prohibition of women speaking in the church. Can you imagine a greeting time in the church? Women say, I'm sorry, I can't speak. I'm not supposed to say anything in church. No, That's not the idea. But the idea instead is that... um, and if you look at the context, it's kind of clear there in 1 Corinthians 14. The context is that women should be silent when it comes to the judging of prophecy. Interestingly, Paul made allowance for if there were prophetic gifts to be exercised at some kind of meeting, maybe a house meeting. Uh, That women could exercise those gifts, but they could not be part of the judging of the prophecy because that's for something for God to do through his appointed offices of bishop or overseer, elder, and pastor. Uh, Again, oftentimes understanding those three roles as being one, but again, those three descriptions of the role of the leader in the church. Hope that helps you there, daughter of the king. Ryan asks another question. Pastor David, could you explain Mark chapter 16, verse 18? I know many churches in the South use snake handling as part of the worship. Was that only for people back in biblical times? Uh, No, Ryan, um, I believe that the sense of that verse is valid for today. Now, Ryan, I'm going to leave aside the textual question of whether or not those verses belong, so to speak, in the New Testament. Let's leave that aside. And just to say this. We see a fulfillment of this principle in the book of Acts, where in Acts chapter, what is it? Chapter 27, where Paul ends up on Malta and he's bitten by a snake. And this is all in the context of Paul doing his apostolic, evangelistic, church planting work. And in the midst of all that, a snake bites him and he shakes it off and he's not affected, even though it was a dangerous viper. God was saying, I will give a supernatural protection to those who are out on the front line spreading the gospel. Not that no harm could ever come to them, because history shows. Uh, There's been martyrs. Uh, Many missionary graveyards in Africa and other places in the world are filled with people who have laid down their lives for the sake of the gospel. But God just said, I- I'm going to bless and give some measure of protection to those who are out on the front lines spreading the gospel. I think we see the fulfillment of that principle with what happened in Acts chapter 27, and then continuing on in church history. That's how I would understand that, Ryan. I, I hope that's kind of clear to you. M- maybe my commentary there on Mark chapter 16 would give you some more insight. Spirit warrior. Says, to your knowledge, is the last part of Mark chapter 16, oh, here we are in Mark 16 again, um, a part of the original writing manuscripts or included after the earliest texts of Mark? I've heard some say that it was af- added after Paul's missions took place because many of these things happened to Paul. A spirit warrior, that's interesting because I, I kind of wish I would have read your answer. I could have answered it in concert with Ryan's question. Okay, spirit warrior, let me give you my answer. I believe, go to my commentary, read my explanation there on Mark chapter 16. Um, And Mike Winger, my friend on his uh, YouTube channel, Mike Winger or Bible Thinker, uh, he does a great job discussing this. I don't come to exactly the same conclusion as Mike Winger, but close. Um, Look, I I believe that... There was something at the end of the Gospel of Mark, and something that was lost, and in one of these early manuscripts, recreated by memory. That would be the best way I would describe it. The end of a scroll got torn off or damaged, or I don't want to be flippant, but spilled coffee on. And uh, the other surviving scrolls that had it in its entirety, for some reason, those were lost history, but there's one little part, somebody reconstructed it from memory, an imperfect memory, where they kept the ideas, but some of the phrasing, some of the vocabulary was different. So, I, I do believe that there's something strange about the ending of Mark, uh, but I do believe also that there was something there, and I base a lot of that on citations from the early church fathers the form of the gospel of Mark that we have right now goes back a long way. It's not like it came up hundreds of years afterwards. So uh, that, that's how I would explain. Go to my commentary for more insight on that. Uh, next question, Nani Mouse 24 says, how do we find godly and true teaching online apart from enduring word? There are so many preachers and teachers and websites I go to church locally, but the teaching is very limited. A rural outback area. Um, Naughty Mouse, I would just say, look around. Uh, I'll recommend some people to you. I just mentioned Mike Winger. Man, Mike Winger's content is good. I approve of that man and his work for the Lord. Uh, some of my favorite teachers there's a man pastoring a church in Modesto, California, Calvary Chapel, Modesto. Damian Kyle is his name, Kyle with a Y. Wow, is he a wonderful preacher of the Word of God. Um, I really respect the teaching ministry of Pastor Joe Focht of uh, Calvary Chapel, Philadelphia. He's an outstanding expositor of God's Word. Uh, my friend Sandy Adams of Calvary Chapel, Stone Mountain, Georgia. He's a wonderful expositor. And let me look for one other one. Um, just recently, somebody recommended to me the teaching of Stephen Armstrong. And I listened to a message of his. Uh, it's a, uh, you could just find it there online. Uh, verse by verse ministries, Stephen Armstrong. Uh, man, I, I thought he did a fine treatment of, of teaching through the Bible. Uh, he was in John chapter 11 or 12. So uh, there's some good ones out there, Nanny Mouse. So I, I would recommend those names to you. Mike Winger, Damian Kyle, Joe Foch, Sandy Adams, Uh, Dominic Dinger in uh, St. Cloud, Minnesota. Wow, what a great expositor of God's word. Um, And again, uh, this guy, Stephen Anderson, that I just listened to, I I thought he was uh, very good. So there's some good recommendations for you. Um, Mara Huff asks, Hi, I'm watching from Miami, Florida. Can you recommend a study guide or book to help me evangelize to my family and friends? Boy, I don't have one with me. But Atmara, I want you to look up this booklet. You can find a reference to it on our website and the side margin of the website, Jesus in the Center. And that's an evangelistic booklet done by my friend Rick Soto uh, that we're helping get word out about. Check that out, Jesus at the Center. Uh, You can find it on the front page of EnduringWord.com. I think that's a great resource. And then it looks like this is the final question here. Five after the hour. It's okay, though. Shaylon asks, Hi, Pastor David. Is there any significant between the 12 baskets and 7 baskets with the feeding of the 5,000 and then the feeding of the 4,000? Thank you from the Gold Coast of Australia. Hey, Shailon. Um, man, I'd love to get back to Australia. I got an invitation to go to Perth, uh, which I know is not the Gold Coast, but uh, there, where is it? Anyway, I'd love to get back to Australia. Um, look, I don't think there's any great spiritual significance. I think we can create things between the 12 baskets and the 7 baskets, but there was a very great practical significance in that God is a good steward and doesn't want things wasted. If there was leftover bread, God wanted it used. And I think that's a great principle for us to see and to, to grab hold of. God wanted these resources used. So I guess that's the way I would describe it. Not to assign a great spiritual aspect. Look, I I mean, sometimes people fall into that temptation. The 12 means this, the 7 means that, and there's some place for doing that throughout the scriptures. But in that particular instance that you're seeing, I think it's just a matter of good stewardship in that line. So that's about all I got to say there for that. Shailene, thank you very much. Moderator, thank you for your work today. Um... And I guess that's going to be it. Hey, I'm planning on being in town next week, so God willing, and if I live, I'll be with you this very next uh, this very next Thursday. Check out our resources, EnduringWord.com. Check out our app. Oh, we've got a fantastic Bible app, absolutely free at the Apple Store, uh, at the, you know, App Store for Apple, Google Play. Man, is it a great way that you can access... Enduring Word commentary right there, and um, God's doing a lot of great things through that. So, thank you. I don't mind at all if you pray for our work. We love to see how God is using these Bible resources all over the world, and so pleased that you could join us today. So, thanks again for joining us, and uh, I pray that it can happen again real soon. Thank you, and God bless you. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.